From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. From November 30th through December 11th, 2015, France chaired and hosted the 21st Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or more commonly known as COP21. One of the outcomes was an international agreement to keep global warming below a 2 degrees Celsius increase. I saw a number of news articles hailing the conference as an enormous success, but as usual, I felt like I was missing the bigger picture. How does COP21 stand in comparison to past conferences? And then what's next? I mean, how do we move forward now? I spoke with a few different experts in various fields to get a better idea of where things stand after COP21. That's me chatting with Alan Alexandrov, director of the Global Symmetry Project at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and senior editor for a journal called Global Symmetry. I asked him for some details on how COP21 offered a different approach. Normally, you know, when we think about international agreements, we think about international institutions, whether the UN or on the economic side, the International Monetary Fund or other institutions. Sometimes we think about the so-called, what I call the informals, that is things like the G7 uh, countries or the G20 countries, forging uh, an agreement that kind of commits all countries. This agreement is different because, you know, they, in effect, they had to abandon, in quotes, abandon, the con- that kind of intergovernmental agreement between the, you know, the countries because they found it was just too difficult to uh, promote. The classic example, of course, was an earlier co- a COP meeting, uh, the Conference of the Party meeting in Copenhagen in 2009. They, are, they came together, it was kind of chaotic, and at the end of the day they couldn't produce an agreement at all. Essentially, the countries turned to a different approach, and you know it's not the only functional area where a different approach has been used, but it is quite um, revealing that what they've uh, kind of moved towards is a what what has been called by some of my colleagues in the international relations field, people like David Victor at the University of California at San Diego and Bob Cohane uh, and, uh, at um, Princeton, Tom Hale at Oxford, which is really a bottom-up kind of agreement. So you don't have this you know, overarching uh, binding treaty which says all of you will do X. Uh, instead you have something that's coming up from below, uh, which is states saying, okay, here's what I'm prepared to do. And one of the things that got around was the problem that in the Kyoto Agreement only uh, established or developed states, the wealthier states, made commitments. And the developing uh, countries, including the large emerging market countries, countries like China, India, and uh, Brazil, weren't obligated to do anything, uh, at least in the immediate circumstance. And so you'll not be surprised to know there was a law of blowback. Uh, U.S. Congress, uh, for instance, was not happy with that approach. 
uh, and in fact ultimately uh, withdrew. Um, uh, this bottom-up approach, which has again been used in other places, was used here and seems to have some, uh, you know, obviously some success since there was an agreement, but it leaves open the obvious need for monitoring, for surveillance, for identifying where countries, notwithstanding their commitments, actually achieve their commitments, right? Right, right. This does not look like a kind of classic international relations environment where people are just talking about states. I also called up Dale Jameson, author of Reason in a Dark Time, Why the Struggle Against Climate Change Failed and What It Means for Our Future, who you might also remember from our previous episode about resource exploitation. He's been writing a paper about COP21. First of all, I'm co-writing it with my colleague, uh, Jennifer Jackett. And the simple takeaway is that we don't yet know whether it's going to succeed. And if it does, it will be because of the context more than the text. So the treaty adds some value to the Framework Convention on Climate Change, but not a lot of value. But what you might hope has changed is that we now have 30 years of experience in trying to reduce emissions and exploring alternative energy sources and struggling not very effectively with this problem. We now have a much more uh, agitated and awakened civil society around this issue, and we have more political commitment from some leaders. So we wrote something actually before Paris that we published in Grist called What to Hope for in Paris. What did you write for your expectations? Was it, did it meet them? or? Yeah, it did. Our big concern in the run-up to Paris was that people would think that if you didn't get a kind of top-down binding emissions limiting treaty, that people would say, oh, it's a disaster, you know, terrible, no success at all. But they didn't do that. I mean, for the most part, people have chosen to view Paris as a success. And uh, and and this is kind of one of the ironies here. If Paris is going to succeed, people are going to have to believe that it succeeded. Because if people lose confidence in this process, then it really has no chance of succeeding. It really is built on um, the relationships between countries, really especially the United States and China, that if I reduce emissions, you'll reduce emissions. If each country is going to take a different approach to their pledges, I was wondering about climate change and law. Thankfully, I was able to get in touch with two law professors. I asked Liz Fisher, professor of environmental law at Corpus Christi College at Oxford and the Faculty of Law in the University of Oxford and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Environmental Law, if she could break it down for me. I mean, one of the ways I like to think about climate change is that it is disruptive, although that probably begs more questions than it answers. First of all, it's disruptive because Law hasn't often had to think about changing physical conditions. And the thing about climate change is in the future we might see quite dramatic changes in the climate which will affect how we operate as societies. Um, and as lawyers we need to think about that. And we don't really have many sort of roadmaps to do that. Because the thing about climate change is you're thinking about recognizing that there are harms out there which a range of different people uh, have been responsible for. And of course, one of the tasks of law is to connect you know, those responsible 
to those harms. But that's a very difficult thing to do when you know there are multiple interests involved, and we're talking about you know both harm and causation at a global level. And so for me, you know, the big challenge of climate change is how do we rigorously think about our legal order and and think about concepts such as rights, obligations, remedies in light of climate change. When the financial crisis happened, um, there was a group of economists who wrote a letter to the newspaper and described this financial crisis as a product of the failure of collective imagination. That you, you know, that you had a group of experts who didn't see this crisis coming for a variety of reasons. And the argument was, you know, that discipline needed to look in on itself. And I would argue the same is the case with law and legal scholarship and legal practice. Climate change is a big problem and there is a temptation to want a single answer to it and a single legal response. But these sets of developments are often at quite a small scale. So then within particular jurisdictions about, you know, um, just to give you an example, which is not particularly recent, and that's the creation of emission trading schemes. Um, so we create one way of thinking about controlling greenhouse gases is to have a cap and trade scheme. We say to those emitting the gases, this is how much you can emit and you know, here is a quota and you can trade it between you um, and that's the way that you can deal with it. But as a piece by Sanya Bogajevic, which was published in the journal back in 2009 noted, that's a really complex legal regime you're setting up. It raises questions about what you think the market is, what you think the state is, what type of obligation, legal obligations are owed, etc. So, it, you know, it's less thinking about, you know, these big things and more studying the different legal responses in detail. Over the course of our conversation, Liz compared the discussion surrounding climate change to a Gordian knot. What, what is happening at the international level is the building of an architecture, an architecture and a framing for thinking about how as a whole group of nations, we move forward with climate change. And of course, the key, you know, the key feature of Paris is this focus on this idea of nationally determined contributions. So it's creating a framework where it's talking about nation states having to determine. And I think determine is a fascinating word because determine is more than decide. It's actually engaging in deliberation, engaging in analysis. Now, of course, that process is not going to happen overnight. It's also going to happen in each nation state in lots of different forums, policy, law, within civil society, within the media. But actually recognising the need for that debate about a hard issue, I do think is significant. Um, as the late Eleanor Ostrom, who, who was one of the greatest writers on, on com commons kind of problems, and climate change is a commons problem, because it's a problem about public good. And you know, her point is the responses to such problems need to be polycentric and they need to be multi-level. And Paris to me is recognizing that. It's a quite a complicated legal architecture. And again, we need to be clear, clear. It's, you know, it's not a magic wand. It's not you know, the perfect answer. But in my mind, it's about reframing the debate. Any discussion, whether it be a public discussion or a scholarly discussion about climate change, needs to be nuanced and sophisticated. I often, you know, sort of think it's a, it's a problem which is akin to a Gordian knot. Our natural impulse is to want to kind of use Velcro to solve it as a problem, but you can't use Velcro 
to untie a Gordian knot and you need to recognise that. And you need to recognise the need within both scholarship and within public life to deal and to foster expertise. What I find fascinating is the way in which such articles are asking these hard questions. So we have a piece coming out um, by McGee and Stefik looking at the history of sort of behind the Paris Agreement and thinking how we can trace that back to wider developments in international law and wider developments in thinking about um, markets and embedded kind of liberalism. The other challenge, of course, is the interdisciplinary one. Right. And of course, there are many different sciences involved in climate change and there are many different scientific practices. And an understanding of all of that is also really important. And I, I do a lot of work with um, talking to a range of, of, of different scientists um, in an academic context. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it takes many years and it takes many years of going back and, and saying, did I really understand this? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think I'm not saying everybody has to do that. But, it, but if, for example, you're writing in the area, that does become important. Um, and it's also understanding about the limits of different disciplines. You know, each discipline has its own limits. It has its own frames. It has its own starting points. And we need to recognize those as well. I also spoke with Maria Gavinelli, assistant professor at the University of Athens and one of the co-editors-in-chief of the Yearbook of International Environmental Law. In any gathering of that magnitude, and keep in mind that there were really thousands of people wandering about that place <laughs> with different agendas, most of them. I would suggest that the overall uh, result is, is fairly positive. First and foremost, we have a, a document, uh, a document on which we can actually build. Uh, it is a legally binding document. Okay, it's not a traditional uh, treaty, but at the end of the day, we did not need a traditional treaty. We needed something much more subtle, much more uh, flexible, much more uh, adjustable, if you like, to circumstances. Uh, we have um, a, a system of um, verification, measuring, reporting and verification, MRV, uh, which is extremely important because you can actually have whatever kind of provisions you like, unless there is somebody looking after it, following up, seeing how people shape up to their own commitments. Uh, I think that the, the key in all this discussion is actually a, a way uh, of keeping track of the situation. A reporting and verification mechanism is absolutely necessary and I think we have that. Overall I think uh, it has all the elements in place for it to become effective. It's too soon, it's too early, quite clearly, uh, to have a final indication of how this would go. What we have to been doing in um, uh, the Yearbook of International Environmental Law is we have just um, issued a call for papers in which we try to uh, link the follow-up to Paris, the, the, cl the, the climate agreement, uh, to questions of adaptation, questions that have to do with uh, the development goals. Once we started having measurable goals, 
we started going somewhere because you said, okay, I have a benchmark. I need to be 5% better. I think that is the important element and that is the work we have been looking forward to, to include in the yearbook of international environmental law. If we can come up with um, a fair number of decent papers on that, that would give us immediately uh, a general overlook of the situation that would, um, I think, help all of us involved in this, uh, in this field of work uh, to realize whether we are in, uh, moving in the right direction or not. Maria spoke more about the legacy of COP21 in terms of international law. This particular uh, issue, climate change in general, is an area where uh, you would see some of the most traditional principles of international law being revisited. Uh, and that really uh, offers the opportunity to researchers to rethink certain issues. The most important element, I would say, is this discussion about differentiated responsibilities, the, the, the idea, therefore, that somehow we are not all the same in international law, which is the traditional way we have been uh, teaching our students about uh, international law. The idea of common but differentiated responsibilities was one of the fundamental principles uh, in the framework convention on climate change. And this is an idea that has been readjusted and reformed in the Paris Climate Agreement, taking into consideration what uh, states are really capable of, but at the same time keeping the principle of equality as indeed it is necessary. This whole area is an exercise of thinking out of the box, because if you go with a traditional approach to things, you would simply get nowhere. Okay, let's further complicate things and look at the economics of climate change in COP21. I spoke with Gib Metcalf, professor of economics at Tufts University and contributor to an Oxford journal called Review of Environmental Economics and Policy, and asked him which economic theories apply. And there is a, a, a framework that goes all the way back over 100 years ago to a British economist named Arthur Pigou. And Pigou came up with this idea that now is known as Pigouvian taxation or Pigouvian pricing. And the idea is a simple one. If markets are working correctly, then the price that you pay for anything, a gallon of gasoline, a gallon of milk in the store, reflects that all of the costs that go into its production. And so prices can then send the right signal to farmers or to, or to electric utilities, whoever it is, to produce the things that we want. Now, when you have an environmental problem like greenhouse gas emissions, you've got a cost, in this case pollution, that's not being reflected in the market price. And so the price that we end up paying doesn't reflect all of the costs that went into producing that product. And when that's the case, we say that the private cost is lower than the social cost, which takes into account the damages from pollution. If we have an artificially low price on, on gasoline because we haven't taken into account the environmental damages, then people will consume more gasoline than is socially optimal. And so Pigou's insight was a very simple one. Let's just put a tax on the thing that causes pollution 
that reflects those social costs that aren't reflected in the price, meaning that that the tax will will reflect the, the damages from pollution. And when you do that, then you will people will respond to the higher price and and begin to consume the socially optimal amount of of um, the commodity in question, in this case gasoline or or fossil fuel generated electricity. And in fact, the US government reviewed the various models out there and they came up with a framework for calculating what is called the social cost of carbon, meaning a monetary price on the damages from greenhouse gas emissions that they could then use for regulatory impact analysis, for thinking about things like fuel economy standards or or Clean Air Act regulations, and they came up with a central estimate of $46 a ton. So green fiscal reform is the simple idea that we can, we can do a range of policies to reduce pollution, and those policies are things like uh, taxes on pollution, for example, a carbon tax, thinking about greenhouse gas emissions, uh, or in the electric utility se sector for a number of years we had an, an acid rain program where uh, electric utilities that burn coal had to purchase permits that allowed them to release sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. So programs like this can raise revenue and that revenue can then be used to address a number of fiscal needs, whether it's to pay for existing government programs or to reduce other taxes. But the idea of a green fiscal reform is let's tax things we don't like, like pollution, in order to lower taxes on things we do like, like labor supply or capital formation. And then I was surprised to find out I was talking to someone who was at COP21. I was in a, in a couple of, of various side events, uh, one in particular that looked at the role of using market mechanisms in the COP21 agreement uh, to do exactly what I've been talking about here, which is the idea of using markets to reduce the cost of reducing emissions. And so in particular, what we were focused on in, in Paris was trying to ensure that the agreement that was written, uh, the decision and the agreement, were structured in a way that it would provide as much flexibility to the countries who sign on to the Paris Agreement to use market mechanisms to reduce uh, pollution cost effectively. It was very gratifying to see that, that they added an entire article, Article 6, in the Paris Agreement that actually deals explicitly with the use of, of market mechanisms. And, and that really is a first because in previous agreements, particularly the Kyoto Protocol, there was really a great deal of skepticism and, and for, some, for some negotiators, outright hostility to the use of markets to, uh, to, to address pollution. Why, why do you think that is? What, what changed? I think there's just been an enormous amount of education over the years of economists and other policy people going and talking to negotiators and and working with them and trying to understand where their what their concerns are and and try to uh, educate them particularly in those areas where those concerns are really misplaced you you came away from cop 21 feeling you know a bit a bit hopeful and and happy with how things went you know if i'm an academic i would give them a b plus okay and 
we haven't solved the problem. Uh, the, the agreement isn't anywhere near as ambitious as it needs to be in terms of the commitments to reducing emissions that we need in order to avoid, you know, breaching the, the uh, two degrees Celsius sort of threshold that, that scientists would like us to avoid doing. Because emissions are a global problem, we really need global uh, action on this. We need all countries involved. We need countries like India, China, Indonesia, Brazil. So the negotiations are critically important for keeping the dialogue going and, and moving us forward. We have commitments to, to address emissions from countries that represent over 95% of global emissions. So that's quite remarkable, that kind of, of commitment, because if you think about the Kyoto Protocol, by the, time, by the end of the Kyoto Protocol, the countries that were actually committed to reducing emissions only accounted for 14% of global emissions. And the second thing that gives me great hope, and, and this was actually a, a very pleasant uh, uh, outcome that I, that I had not fully expected, is we have this so-called stock-taking exercise or, or mechanism built into the agreement whereas, whereby we're going to come back in five years and look at how we're doing and then ratchet up commitments and ratchet up ambition if we're not doing the job. And I think we can pretty confidently predict that we're going to need to ratchet up ambition in five years because we're not doing enough. But at least we have a mechanism built into the agreement to have us come back and tighten the commitments the countries are making. So I think that's a really important outcome. I also asked Alan where COP21 succeeds going forward. If the objective is to limit temperature rise um, to uh, no more than 2 degrees centigrade and realistically um, uh, to 1.5 degrees centigrade, which means lots of countries are going to have to go to zero, zero carbon or carbon neutrality, um, then you know, that's, that kind of focus is where we have to see ourselves. It's not going to occur with this agreement. We're going to have to see further efforts. Now, these pledges uh, are supposed to kick in in 2020 or to be effective as of 2020, and they're supposed to be fully implemented uh, by five years later, either 2025 or in some cases 2030. And so, uh, you know, one would anticipate, I think, that countries are going to have to come together and, and additionally pledge. And I think that's certainly uh, an important follow-on. But some of my friends uh, in, in around the community, the international relations community and climate change community, are hoping that the real success of Paris is uh, to, uh, in effect, catalyze second-order kinds of objectives, right? That would mean, you know, the private sector is going to get much more involved, new technologies, because we can't achieve the result without putting into play new technologies. There's a strong belief among, in the community, that only with clean technologies, new technologies, are we really going to be able to move to um, uh, a carbon neutral situation in several decades. Right? Yeah. Without new technology, without new clean technology, it's, it's hard to foresee us being able to achieve the result. At the time of the Paris meeting of the Mission Innovation, which has uh, in a whole number of countries coming together to help fund uh, public re uh, publicly research 
into new clean technologies. And then the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, which is uh, likely to include uh, a whole number of entrepreneurs who are, you know, kind of alert to, capable of uh, taking new technologies and, in effect, commercializing them, hopefully, relatively rapidly with funding, obviously, to try and spread these new technologies through the economic systems in countries like the United States, in countries like China, in countries like India, Indonesia, countries like that. So all of this, you know, fits into this framing that, again, I, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of new actors and new arrangements in international relations. Climate change seems to be a complicated, interdisciplinary issue, but I haven't explored much in terms of science and ecology. I wanted to also talk to experts who are studying climate change's effect on the planet. Dr. Amber Stubler is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. I asked her about the health of coral reefs and the Earth's oceans. The best analogy I can kind of think of when I describe coral reefs to people who aren't really that familiar with marine science is that coral reefs are similar in sort of the, the biodiversity as rainforests are on land. It's kind of impressive because coral reefs really only take up about 1% of the Earth's surface, but they are one of the most diverse um, ecosystems that we have in the ocean. So they actually support more species per unit area than any other marine environment. Economically, they're super valuable. People have tried to sort of quantify how important coral reefs are, looking at the contribution of, you know, how much people are using them as tourism or uh, how much of our food is derived from coral reef ecosystems. And they usually place that number somewhere in the multiple billions of dollars on a yearly basis. They're also very important for ecological reasons because of that biodiversity and the number of organisms they support. How is global warming affecting these entire ecosystems and very diverse uh, environments? The ultimate issue is that uh, humans and their activities are increasing the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So as a result, our, our sort of blanket around the Earth or the atmosphere is getting thicker. So this translates into sort of an increase in global average temperatures. And the thing about the ocean is it's really, really good at absorbing heat. Once the ocean heats up, it takes a while for it to absorb heat. But once it does, it also takes a while to cool off. And because of that increase in temperatures, we're starting to see problems in coral reefs. Uh, corals are an animal, and they form the basis of coral reef ecosystems. And the thing that's kind of unique about these corals is that they have a symbiotic relationship, which means they work hand-in-hand um, -hand with another um, organism, which is actually a plant. It's called zooxanthellae. Um, and the zooxanthellae live inside of the corals. And they kind of work together. So the corals keep zooxanthellae safe, and the zooxanthellae provide corals with nutrients. Um, but what happens is as you increase water temperatures, the zooxanthellae and the corals get stressed, and they actually break apart. So they, they sort of break up with each other in this relationship. And once this happens, the corals have a really hard time feeding themselves because they used to get so much energy from these little zooxanthellae. As we increase the water temperatures, we have this phenomena happening called bleaching, and that's simply the zooxanthellae leaving the corals. So if you have um, a bleaching event, which happens quite frequently whenever 
the summertime temperatures get really high, if it's for just a couple weeks, if they sort of, if we have like an abnormal higher temperature period, you'll see bleaching happening. And once the bleaching occurs, it's oftentimes irreversible. Yeah, I was going to say this must be just sort of part of, you know, a larger chain reaction, isn't it? Well, if the coral reefs are dying, then this is going to affect um, other species that rely on them and so on and so exactly. on. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because the thing with coral ecosystem or coral reef ecosystems is um, you can think of it like like a rainforest, right? So the corals, like the trees in a rainforest, form that foundation of the whole ecosystem. Obviously, there would be a really big effect on any of the animals and other plants that are sort of utilizing that area. The same thing if you have this massive bleaching event and corals are killed. The structure behind still remains, but sort of the added benefit of having living coral is taken away. And so it, it sort of just reverberates throughout the entire community. If you increase the temperature of water, that water is going to expand. So the ocean is absorbing all of this heat, this excess heat that we're starting to um, trap in our atmosphere. And as it's absorbing that heat, the water itself is increasing in volume. So this is why we're starting to see sea level rise happening, even though some of the ice sheets haven't completely melted and so on. So it's not just simply like melting ice sheets or glaciers that are going to cause sea level rise, but it's the actual thermal expansion of the water. On the other side, the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere itself um, can have an impact on the ocean that rarely gets mentioned, which is called ocean acidification. So the ocean water reacts with the CO2, which is the carbon dioxide, and it actually forms a really weak acid. And that weak acid starts to slowly, slowly make the ocean ever so slightly more acidic. And it's not like something that you and I would notice if we got in the water. You know, the water isn't going to turn to battery acid. Uh, but, you know, for, for organisms that live in the ocean, even the slightest change in pH, which is how we, how we measure acidity of something, can really have big impacts, particularly for animals and plants that, that form some sort of shell. Mm -hmm. So um, like clams or oysters, lobsters, even skeletons, like fish have skeletons. All of their shells and skeletons are made out of limestone. And limestone will dissolve if water is too acidic. So it actually starts to break apart. So we're still kind of in our infancy on, on understanding what the range of impacts of acidification is. I also spoke with Richard Bargett, professor of ecology at the University of Manchester and author of Earth Matters, How Soil Underlies Civilization, who studies the ecology of soils, another integral part of Earth's ecosystems. Human health and healthy soil are inextricably linked. I mean, one goes, they go hand in hand, basically. I mean, the bottom line is that most food comes from the soil, most crops and also livestock rely on the soil. Um, so essentially humans depend on gaining nutrients and also micronutrients, things like calcium, magnesium from the crops that are produced in the soil. So basically if the soil is not healthy, um, the food that we eat will also, I would argue, is also not going to be healthy. And also soils play lots of different functions. They actually filter water removing contaminants, for example, making sure that the water that we drink is clean. So again, they can affect human health in those different ways. But I think also they can 
affect humans in ways that we might not even think about. And an obvious way is through things like pathogens. Um, in the wild, the soil does harbor pathogens that um, can be harmful to humans. There's also an awful lot of organisms in there which are also incredibly beneficial. So in terms of crop protection, for example, there are different organisms which can be antagonistic to pathogens of crops. And the soil also harbors a source of antibiotics and medicines. One of the astounding things is just in terms of biodiversity that some people estimate that 25% of all organisms on Earth are actually in the soil. And those soils play even bigger roles in biogeochemical cycles. So the whole carbon budget is very much um, involved in the cycling of carbon and nutrients within soil. Um, major biogeochemical cycles like nitrogen, phosphorus cycles, all very much involve the soil and cycling of nutrients within it. And I, I was just, I was reading your um, blog post uh, on the OUP blog, and I, I saw you use the term soil neglect. What is that? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, the bottom line to me is it any organism, um, if you don't pay attention to actually refueling it and replenishing it, or if you work it too hard for too long and you're not replenishing nutrients, organic matter, it will degrade. And in many parts of the world, sadly, that has been the case. Um, Over-cultivation of land without return of organic matter, overgrazing, for example, salinization, which is the buildup of salt as a result of excessive irrigation, pollution of soils. I would say all these things are what I would term soil neglect. And there was actually a report produced by the United Nations just before Christmas, um, which was on the world status of soils. And it discovered that something like a third of all soils worldwide are showing some signs of degradation. Well, I think the thing about climate change is that it does significantly impact soils. But I think what it does is it actually accelerates the rate at which degradation occurs. Not all soils are degraded around the world, and also many soils are actually quite resilient. You know, so even a lot of degraded soils, you can, you can transform them relatively quickly. And the key to bringing back soil health to me is really organic matter. And getting organic matter in there, that might be from animal wastes, from growing crops, from decaying plant residues, for example. That really, to me, is the key to restoring the fertility of soils. And one of the things that's been proposed is to actually dampen climate change. We need to actually increase the amount of carbon and organic matter contained within the soils. I, I've been asking everyone about COP21. Um, did you follow it uh, when it happened? Were you, were you interested to see what they were saying about soil? And... I, 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 yes, I did, I did pay attention to it, and I, I was particularly aware of the uh, 4 per 1,000 initiative. Um, which relates explicitly to soils. Do you, are you hopeful about it? or? I, I am, yeah. I think, I mean, essentially the idea is that, um, as I said before, there are something like, you know, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere um, increases every year dramatically and soils contain quite a significant amount of carbon. So the idea is if you can increase carbon, you could potentially halt um, the annual increase in carbon dioxide. But as I said before, the general idea is that by increasing organic matter, you also increase the fertility of soils. So to me, any, any sort of policy mechanism that's focused on improving soil fertility through building organic matter in soils has got to be a good thing. Um, I'm sure there are many issues that will prevent 
carbon sequestration occurring in some places, and it's also very much a global picture. So what we do in one country might be offset by what people do in another, for example. But essentially, I think it's it's a very good thing because it raises awareness and it also puts onus on farmers, landowners, um, and also the general public to think about how we manage our lands and to think about the ways in which we can actually boost carbon within them and in doing so boost the overall health of our soils. So to me it's an an excellent initiative. I wanted to bring this to a close by sharing the end of my conversation with Dale. But you know climate change is such a hard issue because it's not a just let's fix the spark plugs and then everything will be fine. You know give me the wrench I'll get under the hood I'll fix it everything's fine now. It's it's really an issue that requires just constant and ongoing attention. Why can't we just get some new software to fix it? Right. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like these days a lot of people are used to thinking about problems in terms of computers and technology. We treat our bodies that way and stuff. So. No, that's true. I mean, yeah. I mean, increasingly we just swap the parts out. And there's people who probably like to do that with the planet. You know, they're still there's still people who are who are sort of interested in finding another another earth so yes. we could just do that you know just flip our civilization onto alpha centauri or wherever i took an environmental science course in in undergrad and the our professor was uh re- really um depressed about, and this was, this was years ago and um he the metaphor he used was that we as humans had we're like a person on a bicycle who drove it off a cliff and is still pedaling and trying to. <laughs> well, you know, there is this old thing called the first law of holes. Yeah. It says that when you find yourself in a hole, the first thing to do is to stop digging. And that is pretty applicable to this problem because, you know, it's a little like we're in a hole and we're still digging. In fact, we're digging faster and faster. And everybody wants to know what the solution is. Mm-hmm. When who knows what the solution is? But the first thing to do is stop digging. I mean, the main thing that I really want to say is just that the agreement isn't a silver bullet. It's not going to solve anything. It just at best provides a kind of minimal mechanism that could provide a path into a different future. But it really depends on on people and civil society and NGOs holding governments and corporations to really declare that they are willing to make change and then hold them to trying to make those changes. COP21 seems like a good starting point, something to be cautiously hopeful about. I don't think it's a solution, but I'm glad there was a great deal of excitement surrounding it, if only to bring attention to how crucial it is that the Earth does not surpass that two degrees increase in global temperature. Many thank yous to all of the participants in this episode. Alan Alexandrov, one of two senior editors for Global Symmetry, which you can check out at globalsymmetry.oxfordjournals.org. Dale Jameson, author of Reason in a Dark Time. Liz Fisher, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Environmental Law, which you can check out at jel.oxfordjournals.org. Maria Gavinelli, co-editor-in-chief of the Yearbook of International Environmental Law, which you can check out at yielaw.oxfordjournals.org. Gib Metcalf, who is currently wrapping up a paper that looks at the tax system in the U.S. and the treatment of the oil and gas industry, and a new project about how a carbon tax can contribute to fundamental tax reform in the U.S. Amber Stubler, whose website is amberstubler.weebly.com. Richard Bargett, 
author of Earth Matters, and you. Thank you for listening. More episodes of the Oxford Comment can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends. <laughs>